Well, Barb, we had a great interview today. We sure did. Um, it was with someone named Joanna Townsend. How did we find her? Um, her and I connected through Instagram. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, she was a delight. Yeah, Absolutely she was amazing. amazing. We're super excited for you guys to get to meet her. Her name is Joanna Townsend. She has on her Instagram, Joanna Talks Feelings. Mm-hmm. That's her handle. Or for her practice, it's called Rooted and Rise Psychotherapy, if you want to find her. She is a Latinx American therapist, a feminist, an empath, a feeler, and a human above all. She helps women make space for their emotions, uncover their needs, let go of shame and fear, and reclaim their inherent sense of worth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she's based in Bozeman, Montana, Mm -hmm. which we Googled, and it's very beautiful there. It looks beautiful. And then she offers virtual therapy in D.C. and Maryland. Yeah. So we talk a lot about um, disordered eating and diet culture and things like that. That's a specialty of hers. And we're super excited for you guys to get to learn some from Joanna. Mm-hmm. Check it Enjoy. out. Enjoy. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. This is so fun. I know. I'm excited to be here. Um, so our hope with all of the guests that we have the privilege to interview is that um, our listeners, listeners will be able to get to know you um, just as much as they're getting to know the topic that we're going to be going through. So I would love to just start with telling us a little bit about you and what drew you into the mental health field um, and maybe a little bit about like the populations that you work with and what what inspired you to work with the, those particular populations. And then we'll kind of just go from there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. I mean, you probably get this question a lot too. There are so many factors and I can't pinpoint one root of, you know, what led me to this career, this path, but I'm a huge empath, huge feeler, um, super sensitive, all of those. And that kind of typically makes for a therapeutic career in some way. Um, I'm an INFP, and But growing up, I just know that I had a passion or desire to help in some ways. So both my parents were in somewhat of like helping professions. My dad does reproductive health justice work. And my mom was a teacher, a Spanish teacher. And so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, you know, dabbled with public health. I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do education. And I sort of found that one-on-one work, right? Kind of being the therapist friend, being the person that people come to, um, being drawn to social good in some way, but on not as much like a macro level. I was never someone that wanted to do like policy or something bigger. I liked the one-on-one and felt really connected um, and being an introvert as well, you know, having like those close relationships, that's kind of where I thrive. So that's kind of what led me into this path. And then, you know, life kind of weaves and finding myself in internships or volunteer opportunities. But I mean, from the mental health side, I definitely struggled with disordered eating, depression throughout college and most of my like mid-20s. But that was already when I was kind of ironically studying to do therapy um, and wanting to do that. But it was obviously a perfect blend because having lived experiences struggling with mental health um, is super, super important, I think, to relate to, to folks. So those are definitely the areas that I, I would say specialize in. Like you asked about the populations. I love working with teens. I like young adults in college and then all the adulting woes. Um, I find that those kind of three groups are where 
there's just so much struggle and so much turbulence and there's not much advocacy for getting help. I think now times are changing, but I know looking back, I mean, I don't remember those being like therapy being something to do in college unless things were like really horrible, which it shouldn't be that way. It should just be, you know, like a little self-care thing or a support. So yeah, those are the areas that I work with. I do, I mean, I'll work with, um, I enjoy helping clients with anxiety and life transitions, self-esteem, self-worth, but I find that a lot of the clients I work with have struggled with disordered eating in some way or an eating disorder um, or just body dissatisfaction. And so I kind of find that like across men and women. And so that led me to really feel like what's going on here in our culture that is creating these issues in so many of us. And what have you found in that? Like, what are some of your findings? Well, that big word, diet culture, um, impacts so much. And I don't think until you realize, you know, what what's going on in a bigger way, all the messages we're getting, um, because it seems so normal, right? That's kind of something we're taught that, oh, you need to lose weight and you need to look this way and here's how to feel sexy and beautiful and desired. And you'll get this stamp from society that says you did it while dismissing all the mental health consequences and physical health consequences of that. And it's kind of like, I think I heard this analogy once, like fish don't know they're swimming in water, right? And we don't know we're drowning in diet culture until we step back and realize like, oh my gosh, this is everywhere. I was with my nieces at the pool the other day and they had their Barbies. And I, I know that Barbie and Mattel has made like a big push to like be more inclusive with whatever, but their Barbies, I guess, were older. And I was just like, this is why there are so many problems in our world mm-hmm. <laughs> with like with the like ideals that we have because they were like undressing the Barbie to put like a bathing suit on Barbie and whatever. And it's like, oh, this like shape is being instilled in their minds is like, this is the ideal shape to have. And like, this is the ideal facial features to have. And this is the ideal hair to have because it's on their dolls. And I just realized it's like, to your point, we're drowning in this. It literally is everywhere. It's crazy. It's so pervasive. Um, And it, yeah, it takes a lot of work to start pointing it out. Like you said, how early on those messages are. Um, I'm not sure if you've read Glennon Doyle's new book, Untamed, but she sort of talks about that a little bit with her daughters growing up compared to her, she has a you know, son as well, and looking at just the messaging they get on the shampoo bottles, of like, be tough, be strong, versus, you know, all the messages women get, young girls get. And I think, yeah, research shows, like, we start to develop self-esteem by age six, so, um it really starts so early on and it's so sneaky, right? Yeah. What? Okay. So self-esteem, I know what comes to my mind in that, but what are you talking about when you talk about self-esteem? Right. So people use self-esteem a lot and I kind of referred to it. Um, I like to replace it with self-worth just because self-esteem is so variable, right? It's kind of these markers of feeling good when we're doing well or, feeling good about who we are or achievement or success, but those can all change if we lose the things they're attached to. So when I say self-esteem, I'm kind of using it interchangeably with self-worth, meaning 
we have value and we are who we are, no matter if we're doing well or not. If we're falling and in a time of our life where things really suck, like we are still deserving of good and have inherent value just because we're living, breathing humans. How would you say, Joanna, you know, if you're, if we're seeing that self-esteem or self-worth is developing at such a young age and how that development process is clashing with all of these messages from media and even just in their, you know, their household and their upbringing, whatever messages are happening there, how would you describe, you know, let's say somebody comes to you as a client and they're like 21 and they're struggling with disordered eating and self-worth issues. Um, how do you start to help them understand where their self-worth really comes from and how maybe it's clashed with some of the messages that they've received growing up, whether it's from media or from home or from their peers? How would you go about kind of unraveling that with them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I like that you used unraveling because that's exactly the way I frame it. I, you know, pose this idea of let's pull the thread and see where it goes. If we feel like this now, let's identify some of those beliefs of I'm just not good enough or you know, this idea of if I lose this weight, then I'll have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a relationship or um, I'll finally feel good about who I am. And so when we pull the thread and identify that, being able to pinpoint, like, where else did we hear this? Did we hear it from someone else? Did we hear it from a parent? Did we hear it from friends or peer comparison? I mean, we know those adolescent years are super tough with um, our identities and who we are. So a lot of it, and we know that we're not born thinking that, right? Um, We're not born that way. We are born feeling okay with who we are and kind of living life. And then we start to internalize all these little messages um, and put on all these layers and sweaters, right, over the years. And that just gets really heavy. And we do, we know, right, we do a really good job of protecting ourselves in our minds from that. So that's, you know, as we talk about, like the unconscious parts, we might not remember all of that because we can't, that's impossible, but it's there and it's sitting and it's heavy. So yeah, unraveling is really identifying like, what are these early beliefs? You know, what things did we read in the grocery store, in that magazine we used to get? What are things people have said to us, parents, partners, relationships, friends, and how have all of those created this big yarn ball in a way? So when you've been doing your work with clients around disordered eating, are there themes of where those messages are coming from? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a mix. So I would say a lot of it comes from the society part, but the size society part is also reinforced, right, by maybe someone's mom um, and witnessing their mom or parents struggle with that. You know, a lot of fat shaming or body shaming that as a young girl or a young boy, if you're exposed to that, right, you then start to kind of question, how come my parent is feeling this way about themselves? And what does that mean about how then I'm viewing body diversity or having biases towards certain body sizes? So that's a huge one. I would also say just the men, of course, struggle with this too, but I think predominantly it is something that women struggle with just because of the ideas that our bodies define who we are, right? And that we kind of have tethered body image to thinness. And that's everywhere. It's still everywhere, unfortunately. And so 
internalizing that and then creating this idea in our minds of like, okay, we have to do this thing. Everyone jump on this sport, on this like, you know, roller coaster in order to pursue that or to feel good. Yeah. And that's a huge one that I've, I feel like I've grown in, in the last like decade or so since I've been doing my own work around that is even if I notice that someone's weight has fluctuated like if they've gained weight or lost weight or whatever, I literally would never say anything anymore because of how damaging in that will just reinforce a narrative that everyone else is already telling them. But to, before that, I had no idea. Like I was like, oh my God, you've lost weight. You look amazing. You look so good. And then all that's saying on the flip side is you didn't look good before. Mm-hmm. And like you didn't look this way. And you weren't like to take it another level, you weren't lovable. You weren't desirable. And those are the messages that can be internalized. And you just don't realize how damaging it is until I guess your eyes are opened and you're like, dang, like this is really reinforcing. Honestly, I know I blame everything on patriarchy, but it is reinforcing (laughs) the patriarchy. (laughs) Yes. That like, it's like a woman's job to be thin, small, and delicate so that she can be desired by men. Um, I'm so with you. It's so hard because I have tons of friends that, you know, haven't done this work and just aren't maybe aware of it. And so it's hard to sometimes feel like the a-hole of not complimenting something someone wants you to compliment. Um. (laughs) And that transfers beyond weight too, I think. Like it transfers to like, like to makeup, like making note of like when someone is or isn't wearing makeup or it transfers to hair. It transfers to like all of these different aspects of like aesthetic beauty where like, it's fine if someone's like into makeup or whatever wants to do their thing, then they can do it. And like, oh, that's so creative could be one way of saying it versus like, you look so beautiful because then I wonder if the internalized message would be like, you don't look beautiful when you don't have all of this on. And I think it's just so easy because it's like an easy compliment and it's an easy way to connect. But then what rejecting that narrative will do will force you to connect on a deeper level and connect with people over character traits and like social issues or whatever it is that you want to connect over. We just have this bias, right, towards judging women for how they look. We see this everywhere. Um, And that's the kind of first thing that we take away. And so it's so easy to fall into that because, again, we're like socialized into this world where we've been marinating in this our whole lives. And so it's hard to step back and realize, wait, let me not put some sort of value on how this person looks because appearance shouldn't be and isn't, you know, who we are. It's not our worth, but it's really hard to unhook. Well, I'm curious if if you wouldn't mind maybe defining diet culture, because we're kind of throwing around that term, but I wonder if, if for some people they're like, wait, what is diet culture? What does that mean? Um, how would you define that, Joanna? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a system of beliefs, right, that reinforces this idea that thinness or small bodies and also able bodies, white bodies, are more desirable and worthy than all other bodies. And it's in the pursuit of health and wellness. But we know if we pick it apart, rarely health and wellness is ever actually achieved in diet culture because it causes so many issues and mental health and physical health consequences. But diet culture is that system that moralizes certain foods, deems other foods as bad, tells you you are good if you're 
dieting or restricting or even kind of wellness culture does this, right? If you're cleansing or doing all these things, um, and if you do that, you know, then you're doing a great job. Um, and you get those little rewards from other people complimenting or from weight loss. So it's all those beliefs that create this, yeah, like deep system of really harmful ideas and messaging. Moralizing food. So that's really good. So this is like, oh, carbs are bad. Greens are good. And why is that a problem? Right. So the moralizing food makes you feel like if you eat that slice of pizza or five or that chocolate cake or something that has dairy and gluten um, and there aren't sensitivities and allergies, then you're bad um, and you are bad for eating that food. But if you drink that celery juice or eat that clean I'm using air quotes here, um, that clean food item, then you are good, right? And so that internalized idea of my behaviors or actions makes me a good or bad person. And so we do that all the time with food and that's something that diet culture loves and even wellness culture loves, that you have to do these things or eat this way and this food is inherently better um, or there's foods that are inherently worse than others, which is just not the case. There are foods that have more energy, right? More nutrients are more nutrient dense, but that doesn't make them like worse or bad. All foods are just there. They don't have this label that we tag. Like we are the ones that tag them with good or bad. Hmm. That's so good. So I think that you are a proponent. Is proponent the right word? Sure. Proponent. An advocate for intuitive eating, right? Absolutely. For this reason. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk a little bit about how intuitive eating ties into and can really be like a healing process for someone who has maybe come from this lineage of bad food, good food and moralizing food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll kind of define what intuitive eating is in the best way I can. It's an approach to health and wellness that is rooted in how we were meant to eat and how we are supposed to eat, which is intuitively, meaning not thinking about it, not obsessing over it. It's not rigid. It's not flexible. It's just how we eat, kind of like how a child eats that maybe hasn't yet digested diet culture, right? Eating according to how our bodies feel, eating according to like what feels pleasurable or yummy or yeah, like satisfying, all of those things and letting go of the notion of restricting or health in the pursuit of weight loss, right? Mm -hmm. Intuitive eating is pro-health, like health is matters, but it's saying that health isn't defined by how you're eating or not eating or what your body looks like. So if we think about intuitive eating is having freedom around eating um, and honoring our health and wellness while doing that, but letting go of this like diet, restrictive obsession way of eating that has become our culture's norm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that can be so healing if you're coming from the ultra-restricted. It can feel scary, I'm sure, to like not moralize food. But the healing aspect really comes with learning to trust yourself. Like that's what I'm hearing when you're talking. It's like learning to trust that like if your body's hungry, your body is gonna say, I'm hungry. 
And if your body's full, then you can trust your body and push the plate away. You can trust that if your body's craving fruits, that you can even eat fruit, even if it's not on the macro plan or whatever people do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> but just like learning to trust your your instincts and trust yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, that body trust and body wisdom that we have. Like we are born with that. It is biology and we can't fight that. But we do when it comes to diet culture or trying to lose weight. We kind of lose that just trust that we have, like you said. Um, And so it's about regaining that or reclaiming that in a way. Like, let's go back to the basics and go back to how we were meant to eat, which is food is awesome. Food is pleasurable. um, And our bodies deserve to feel good. And we deserve to have our bodies feel good. But let's let go of this like rigidity around it. So yes, definitely a proponent and advocate of that for sure. It can be super healing and imperative to recovery or having a healthy relationship with food and body. I was thinking too, it makes me think of just how important mindfulness work is because um, I think I, Sav and I talked about this at one point where some of the clients that I'm working with that might be struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder that will, they'll actually at some point bring in a piece of food that they feel comfortable eating in session and we'll slow down that process like by a hundred and just to allow them to experience being mindful while eating. And it just reminds me of this intuitive eating piece that like mindfulness can be such a helpful part of that because um, when, like you're saying, when we're moralizing food and then shaming ourselves, if we feel like we've eaten something that is immoral, then we feel very disconnected from our minds, from our bodies. So have you found that um, doing some like mindfulness work and kind of just allowing people the chance to be present with their bodies and to maybe show compassion towards their bodies? And uh, is that a part of the work that you're finding is helpful with clients? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say mindful eating is part of intuitive eating. Intuitive eating is a lot more because it has the kind of, let's let go of this restrictive idea, let go of the food police. There's a lot of principles that describe that. But yes, mindfulness is a part. And I think for two reasons. The first is the eating component, right? Of um, I always use this because I think children can teach us a lot. Look at a child eating a cookie, right? They're going to enjoy it. They're going to take a few bites. Maybe they'll put it down and like play or talk and then come back to it. And if they don't want any more, that cookie's just going to sit there. But if they're really enjoying it, they're going to, you know, have chocolate all over their lips and say, that was so yummy. Um, And that's mindful eating. They're eating it very mindfully. Um, They're not going to kind of overdo things all the time. And if we do, it's also okay. But they just have that trust, right? Because again, if that child hasn't been exposed yet to this toxic eating culture that we have, then that's just what we do well. And so yes, slowing down, having kind of intentionality and being really attuned to how our body is feeling during an eating process can be very helpful. And then the second part is the mindfulness just around emotions, right? If we're often using food to cope, that is okay and normal and healthy, but we need more coping skills, right? And we need to kind of expand our toolbox. So the mindfulness can also help with recognizing, is this coming from an emotion? If I'm eating this food or binging or whatever, it's going to help short term, but that food isn't the fix for the emotion. So we're going to eventually have to deal with the emotion. And that's also when mindfulness can help us 
just slow down and realize, okay, this is because I'm anxious or this is because I'm lonely or I'm bored or there's some emotion here. And if I'm mindful of that, I'm knowing that, okay, I'm using food in this moment, but what else can I use to actually then address the emotions that are going to inevitably be there after this binge or overeating episode? Because of that idea of when we let go of that, we learn to just trust our bodies um, and letting go of the idea that we need to kind of look a certain way um, or that health is defined by someone's weight and any of that. So I would say intuitive eating has been huge, but I also want to remind us that I think people think intuitive eating is like another diet or another form of something to follow, and it's absolutely not. I know that I think when they were trying to publish the book, they didn't want to have, there's, so there's 10 principles. They didn't want to have those, um, but because our society like loves rules, I think yeah. they were encouraged to have like, have, you know, a step-by-step process. So while I'm absolutely someone who loves teaching intuitive eating and uses it a lot and helped me so much, it also doesn't mean we need to adhere to everything. There are going to be mistakes. We're always going to mess up with our relationships with food. And that's part of it. That's life, right? There's no perfect way. So yeah, I would say that. And then also, you know, the ideas of health at every size, that's another component that often gets paired with intuitive eating work. Yeah. If you want to go into health at every size, because I love that too. Yes. So I'm trying to see if I can define it in the best way possible, but it is, I would say, a social justice movement um, that talks about weight inclusivity and the inherent biases that come even in healthcare or the medical professions, that weight is this indicator of health, which is such BS. Every body, like literally a person's body, has access to health um, if they want that, right? And if they have means or preferences, like we all deserve to feel good and health is more about our behaviors and what we're doing. Um, to take care and respect and feel good about our bodies. But there's so many disparities when it comes to weight discrimination. Often what we prescribe for people in larger bodies are eating disorder behaviors. To people that go to the doctor's office, one will be told to lose weight just because of their body when maybe that has literally nothing to do with what they're coming for help with versus someone in a smaller body, you know, is praised for weight loss and then is actually getting help for this underlying issue they're getting help without the doctor. So yeah, it definitely blends a lot of the intersections and disparities with weight and how we're so obsessed with that, meaning that we're healthy. And so health at every size, yeah, it's sort of that movement against that, um, that challenges a lot of this diet culture mentality, but also a lot of the like ableism and sizeism inherent in our culture too. I can't help but notice like when, so when we first were talking before we started recording, you were sharing a little bit about, um, your background and how you grew up and that your, I think you said your father was, remind us what he did for work. In public health. Public health, right. And how you were saying as you were navigating, um, you know, what you should do in terms of career that you're like, well, I don't know if I want to do things on a macro level as it relates to like justice work and things like that, but maybe more of a micro level. And I can't help, help but notice that as a, as a mental health therapist, I can see that you're such a strong advocate for your clients 
it's like an advocate for what's healthy, an advocate for for really like triaging shame too, because that shows up so much when you're working with disordered eating and eating disorders. Um, I can just just see that that's such a gifting of yours to kind of triage that shame and advocate for the client, kind of on a justice level, but from a micro place. So I don't know if that feels true for you, but I just can't help but notice that about maybe the way that you navigate your work with clients. I think that's yeah pretty spot on. Obviously, we know that the personal or the micro things we work on have to do with the macro and they're informed a lot of times by that. But yeah, it's just definitely a topic for you know my own reasons, but also just because of our culture to think about pulling that thread, right? How did we get there? It's because there's all these bigger issues and biases and discrimination. And, you know, I think I also was learning recently how that's tied to racism, right? You know, what a relevant time to be talking about this too. White supremacy and racism are tied to diet culture. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. Um, So if someone's listening to this and let's say they're like, dang, maybe I do moralize food or maybe I am obsessed with everything that I put in my mouth or the way that my body looks, et cetera. What is some like first steps that you would give to them as they start to pursue or start to pull, I guess, the thread of their life? What would you recommend for them? The first thing I would always do is to say, of course, like that is normal and natural that you feel this way, right? It's kind of impossible for us not to. Back to that fish and water analogy or metaphor, we're all swimming in this. So anyone who pursues weight loss or is, you know, on this clean eating regimen, of course they are. Like, that's okay. That's a consequence of this culture. So being able to bring awareness to that from a very compassionate place and then looking at it from what are we trying to achieve with this, right? Where is this going to, what are we doing with this? How do we feel? What goals are we going to get from this type of moralized eating? What are we looking for? And often when we pull that, there's maybe confidence or feeling good about someone, feeling good about ourselves um, or happiness. When we then redefine those, those don't have to do with how we look, right? We can have all of those right now as we are, but it's easier to tie that to weight. It's easier to tie that with food. It's easier to tie that to fitness or aesthetic. Um, And so helping someone look at this in a very, again, like gentle way, like what are we looking for from this type of eating and what's stopping us from feeling that way right now? Like, are there micro adjustments we need to make with our health? Oftentimes there are, again, health is about behaviors that are health promoting, but maybe we don't have to use this rigid plan to get there, right? Is the rigid plan a way of coping or does it feel safe and comforting because it's what we've always known. So it's so scary to step away from that. I think you mentioned that earlier, Sal, like it's scary to step away, but we can do scary, right? We can do that. And in fact, that can really help us find growth through discomfort. Mm, That's so good. We can do scary. I like that. We can do scary. Yes. And what it's doing is it's encouraging to go to the thing below the thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, yes, the thing is disordered eating and from anything from whatever restrictive diet to orthorexia to whatever, then going below that and saying, what is this serving? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, you want to feel loved. You want to feel like you belong. You want to feel beautiful. And that's where this is headed towards. And so I love that. That's such a good and practical place to start 
where it's like, what's the fear with weight gain or what's the fear with not being healthy? And I'm using air quotes on that too. I wish people could see us. Yes. <laughs> like where, what's the fear there? And then that will reveal and expose a lot. I think about where, where the drive is coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's Dang, good. what a good place to start. Yes. We'll ask to join our question. Okay. <laughs> so we love asking this question just towards the end. And first, and lastly, first of all, how will we say that? Yes. Thank you so much for everything you shared. That was incredible. Oh my gosh, you're so smart and just so wise. And mm-hmm. I, you're just such a safe space for your clients. Yeah. I can tell. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you're so good at what you do. Oh, thank you. So since our podcast is called the Pep Talks Podcast, we love to ask um, all of our guests, if you were to give yourself a pep talk at, let's say, 18, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? I love this question. I love it so much. (laughs) A lot of the, I mean, inner child work, I don't know. I'm sure you know about that. I'm not sure how much you talked about it on the podcast, but maybe an episode there, some time for you both. But yeah, really, I would want to first give myself a hug. And I would want to say, it's okay. You don't need to do this, right? We don't need to be restricting or um, feeling defined by how you look. You are enough as you are. Um, Just giving myself comfort in who I was um, and unhooking it from how I looked or what number was on the scale um, or what size I was in my clothes And if I had learned that then, um, while I'm glad I've gone through what I've gone through because that has been helpful and important and I don't regret any of that because it led me to where I am. But if I had learned that then or had someone to help me back then through that, that would have been a lot easier to kind of do the things I wanted to do in life and spend a lot more time on things that I cared about and not on manipulating my body. (laughs) I love that you started with a hug. We've not had anybody respond that way. And that's the best thing I've heard. (laughs) Yes. And just giving, yeah, 18 year old self permission Mm -hmm. to just be what they actually are instead of what, you know, you feel like you needed to be. Definitely, yeah. Permission to be, permission to eat, permission to rest, all those things. Gosh, well, seriously, like we said, you are amazing. We're so thankful that you took time to be with us. And I know all of our love, all of our lovers. <laughs> I was going to say all of our, all, all of our, our lovers out there. <laughs> Todd, Todd's editing this like what? <laughs> no, all of our listeners are going to love you. <laughs> Ooh, Todd, I don't have any other lovers. I don't have time for it. <laughs> too much. Well, if you have not been told yet today, we believe in you and you have, have what it, it takes. Thank you for listening. If you want to keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram at the Pep Talks Podcast. And we want to be clear, everything that we're sharing on this podcast is not or intended to be therapy or psychological advice. It does not constitute a client-therapist relationship. We are your virtual friends, not therapists. Yes. So if anything comes up for you during these podcasts, we completely understand. We're talking about a lot of different topics. So please consult a mental health provider for support. You can find a therapist through Psychology Today's website at www.psychologytoday.com. Yep. Have a great week, guys.